to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to examine how your various personal identities intersect and influence how you interact with students and colleagues. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Kwame Sarfo Mensa, owner and founder of Identity Talk Consulting. Kwame Safra Mensa has over 14 years of experience in the classroom, teaching middle school math and science in Philadelphia and then Boston public schools. In addition to this, he has written two books and various articles, offers tutoring for students in online classes for first-year teachers, and has his own internet talk show, Identity Talk for Educators Live, where he interviews guests about their personal stories and the specific elements that shape who they are as educators. Kwame was also named the 2019 Member of the Year by Black Educators Rock, Inc., and the 2019 Massachusetts Celebrity Educator of the Year. I talked to Kwame in early April, a little over a week after he and his family had come back to Boston after spending a year in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where his wife was working as a director for the Peace Corps. Kwame is obviously an incredibly busy person, However, his family was in quarantine after returning to the States, which was unfortunate for them, but a great opportunity for the podcast. And I was able to speak to him over Zencaster. I, as someone who has also stepped out of the classroom uh, recently, how, and, and this, I, I think, folds into the, the larger thing that I wanted to talk to you about is the, the idea of teacher identity. I found it really hard being out of the classroom and the people would ask, well, what do you do? And I'd be like, well, I'm a teacher. Well, I'm kind of not, I'm just not in the classroom, but I'm still a teacher uh, inside. And like, I just, I didn't know how teacher had been my default for so long. (laughs) I've gone through those same trials and tribulations. I think in my case, prior to the move, I had already written a book and started LLC. So this was all done within the past couple of years. So I think mentally I was preparing myself to create a new avenue where I can continue to have an impact and leverage the skill sets that I developed as a teacher. So if I ask you, so what do you do? What is your answer? So I'm a writer. I am a teacher development specialist, a consultant, but I think first and foremost, I'm just an educator at heart. So what initially led you to focus in on the idea of of teacher identity? So I would say that the journey started during my second to last year at my previous school. I had just left on paternity leave because my son was, my son was just born. Um, and during that time in the house, which was three months, it gave me an opportunity to process everything that had transpired 
um, during my first four years at the school. Because when you're in the classroom and you're, you know, in the process of doing lesson plans, preparing lessons, talking to parents, it's all the day-to-day things that we all do as teachers. You don't really have a time to, to process the things that are clearly wrong with our school system. You know what the issues are, but you just kind of, you identify it. You know, you may um, commiserate with your colleagues and friends, and then you find a way to move forward to the point where you become indifferent to what's going on. Yeah. You're treading water so fast that you don't think about the water itself. Absolutely. So in my case, I just felt like I had time, extended time to do something other than teaching because I was the type of teacher that was in school every day. If my leg wasn't broken, I was in school. If my arm wasn't broken, I was in school. I mean, I was I was an Iron Man to the point where kids were like, don't you want to just take a break? <laughs> when you're forced to stop, obviously, you're not just sitting around doing anything because, you know, I have a newborn baby. This is our first son. But then when our baby's napping, that's the time when I really start to wonder, well, okay, what, what can I do? And somebody brought the idea of just writing a book because I talk about education all the time. I rant about it. It just makes sense to write a book. So I had a lot of experiences to share. And I felt like with everything that I was going through at my school and just my overall journey as a teacher, I wanted to give the early career teachers a resource that they can use to navigate their own path but also to really make sense of who they are as educators. There's understanding that in order for you to do this job effectively, you have to have a strong sense of self because the way that one person might navigate the classroom might not work for you. But unless you know that and understand who you are, you are going to have your struggles. So I wanted to write a book that spoke to that idea of developing you know your own identity and your mindset and just understanding that your life experiences how you were brought up the journey you took to get into this field is what makes you who you are ultimately that's what makes you authentic and that's what shape of the identity turned out to be uh, for me not so much it wasn't a memoir but it was more so a a guide for any teacher that just needed perspective on what that journey could be like for them and how others have navigated through their, their respective journeys. I wish I had had that book. I I'm thinking specifically of a student teacher that I was helping mentor. And ultimately our only advice was like, okay, you've gone from high school straight into post-secondary right into this classroom my, our only advice was like, please go travel, please go have life experience and, and then come back. And I wish I had been able to give that teacher a, a book like yours to really explain the point that we were trying to make. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very hard for first year teachers to 
stay motivated and just navigate through those first couple of years. Because if you look at our teacher training programs, at least during a time that I was in grad school, they weren't really focusing a lot on how to be a culturally responsive educator. You know, a lot of the stuff that I learned was around educational psychology, educational theory. So I learned about the Jean Piaget's, the Lev Vyskoskis. So I learned about all these people, but we didn't really learn about what it would be like to teach in a setting where the students didn't look like you. So, so I think in my situation, you know, being a black man, teaching in an urban setting, I was able to navigate it easier than most because when I entered the, my grad school program, I already had a few years of experience under my belt. So I was used to being around that population. And there was some cultural, there was a cultural connection that was already there. So it didn't feel foreign to me. But if you're someone who is not black, you're going to have a, another layer, another learning curve you're going to have to overcome before you can even get to the actual um, instruction. I interviewed a, another guest um, who is also a, a, a male teacher of color, Nate Bowling, and his perspective was he really felt that in like if you're a young white teacher who's off to save the world he ended by saying i beg you don't go into urban education like really think critically before you step into that urban school you're not going to be michelle pfeiffer you're not going to be the white savior and is that something that you've seen less of now that teachers are getting this culturally responsive training or is it just as prevalent i wouldn't say there's less of it because I don't think I don't really have the statistics to really answer that question. But what I will say is this, there's more of an awareness of those who come in as the saviors being culturally responsive, especially as a white person who generally wants to do what's right for his or her students. It's a it's a slippery slope. And sometimes when someone tries to point out the fact that even though your attentions are are great, you're not going about it the right way, the fragility can sometimes come into play. And that could deter that person from continuing to try because they feel like they're offended. They feel like you're questioning their professional integrity um, as a teacher these are things that I have seen um, and heard. So I don't know if there's less of it, but I think there's more of an awareness of this phenomenon. That I know for sure. What would you say are the other main tenets of teacher identity that teachers are asked to grapple with? I would definitely say, you know, your your personal upbringing, of course, you know, just culturally, you know, where you're from. And I think this is something that's difficult for, particularly in a place like America, where you have a melting pot of cultures. You have people who, they grew up here, like myself, but my, but my parents are both 
uh, from Ghana, um, West Africa. But for someone like myself who has a West African name and I look the way I did, uh, people just couldn't understand. They didn't know how to react to that because I was such an anomaly um, in my elementary school. It was hard for them to grapple with that. And I was subjected to a lot of jokes, a lot of names. So I think culturally for at least black people, there are so many different iterations of that. You know, not every black person is the same. And we think about the fact that the education system is based off of a Eurocentric perspective. I had to go through this process. K to 12, I'm learning about history, but I'm not learning about my history as a black person. I'm not learning about Africa, you know, and if, and even if I'm learning about black history, I'm only learning about a fragment of it. But even that fragment of it doesn't really speak to the greatness of, of the culture, the greatness of the history. It only speaks to a whitewashed um, narrative of it. And this is what I had to grow up learning. And then you get to college. Then you start to learn about really learn about the history. And I was an African-American studies minor. So I took a lot of um, black history courses during my time in school. And this is me at 18, 19, 20 years old at this point, learning this stuff. So I had gone those first 17 years of my life, not really knowing who I was, right? So I would say culture is definitely one. Obviously, how you grew up geographically, socioeconomically, um, that's another. I think that plays a role, especially if you're someone who teaches in a uh, Title I school and you grew up the way that a lot of kids in your class grew up, you already have a connection right there. Because now you're talking about poverty. Now you're talking about class. Um, you're talking about economics, and how that's manifested in the different neighborhoods throughout, you know, where you are. So, you know, there's that. Um, obviously, your personal talents, because I think we all come in with different talents, different um, aptitudes, um, if you will, that make us uniquely who we are. But I would say just the different stages of your development, because... I think we all go through stages where, you know, in one, in one stage, you know, you're this person and you go through, you know, your struggles and you learn different lessons during that stage. And then you transition to another stage where you evolve as a person. You become somebody totally different from who you were in the previous stage. Uh, so I think there are a lot of different components to that, to an identity. And of course, and I've even, I've even mentioned the idea of sexuality and gender, especially now that we have LGBTQ communities um, that are being more emphasized in our society. And there's now some legislation that's in, that's in place to support them. So that's another 
element as well. I, I think there's just a lot of different um, components there. It, it's something I, I think about a lot just because finding out the stats in Washington that I, it's over 80% of teachers are white middle-class ladies and just reflecting on the burden that those who aren't then have to sh- ha- shoulder in the school because students instinctively go go to teachers that look like them and reflect their lived experiences and just you know how can you we already there's already research showing the tremendous burden uh, burden of you know running diversity committees and workshops that go on to teachers of color and just adding that the student emotional burden um, how other teachers can take that on is something that I've just been thinking about a lot recently um, I was just thinking as you were saying this it's hard to ignore the intersectionality of race, class, sexuality, and gender. You can't, you can't ignore that because even if you do a diversity um, panel or a diversity group, you have some, okay, let's say you have maybe a population of, of black staff members in this group. Within that population, there are some who might be homosexual, who there are some who are heterosexual, right? And so you, you can't, so it's hard to really generalize, you know, this issue. You know, you can't just, you can't just do a, a diversity group and do it in a way that is, uh, that doesn't really show a whole lot of fidelity. You know, you really have to be mindful of the intersectionality of all those different elements because if you think about it, you just mentioned 80% of teachers are um, white, white female, right? So you already have, so that 20% are already going through some sort of, some form of prejudice, some form of discrimination within their industry, with within their schools, within their districts. And then you add a layer of sexuality into it, then race, then class. It only exacerbates the issue. <laughs> and then that's where we see a lot of teacher attrition where you just, you know, it is an inhospitable environment for those that don't fit the norm. I mean, that's how school systems are set up, right? You, you're forced, whether you're a student or a teacher, just try and fit into a norm. And then we lose all these amazing educators. Though I imagine the more teachers are, are cognizant of that and the more we start to, like you said, respect those intersectional identities, at least hopefully we can keep more teachers in the classroom representing who they are. Absolutely. And I think what you're saying is alluding to this idea of playing the game, right? Um, I know for myself personally, and I'm and I'm not a you no, know, I'm not going to sit here and lie. I mean I've had to play the game from day one. <laughs> when I whenever I enter the school, I leave a part of myself at the door. Because if I bring my full self in, that could lead to some ramifications that I may not be prepared for. So this is what maybe the average black male teacher does. They 
they kind of come in and they have to be mindful of how they talk, their their tenation. They have to be mindful of how they how they dress. Mindful of just their whole appearance because any of those could be taken under the microscope and that'll be enough for you know people to make judgments and and create these perceptions about who you are that are totally negative and, and incorrect and inaccurate. We're always mindful of those things. We we spend so much time trying to assimilate to a certain expectation of who you're supposed to be as a as a teacher. And that's and that expectation does not align with who we are culturally. Because it, it all stems from this Eurocentric ideal of what that means. And how did you personally, because the, the burden of having to leave part of yourself behind when you walk into the classroom and it's emotionally draining enough to be a teacher, having to to grapple with that, like how did you stay mentally healthy? I think I always put the students at the forefront. So whenever I was in the classroom, obviously if I'm around my students, I'm I'm gonna be my full self because I'm around students. It's it's my sanctuary. That's my classroom. But when I leave that space and I'm around maybe my other colleagues, I'm conducting myself in a totally different manner. You know, so it all depends on where you are in where you are within the classroom, where where you are within the school. Demographically, are are we starting to see more and more diversity in like the high in the administration in the district higher ups? That always seems seems the slowest to change, just from what I've seen. Like we can celebrate, oh, so much diversity in our teachers, but then they just never get promoted to vice principal or principal or district principal. I mean, I have my theory about that, but what what do you think is the reason for the lack of representation in the administration realm? Racism. Well, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And and it's funny you mentioned this because this is something that um, I talk about in my book, uh, From an Action to an Action. So this is the my new book that just released. And there's this idea of lack of representation within the, and not just within the teacher realm, but even in the administration realm. Because here's the thing. Imagine if you had, if every person that was a principal was a black person, right? Or 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 Latinx, somebody of color. Imagine what type of impact that would have in on our schools and with our students. I don't think I don't think America's ready for that. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think they are. <laughs> Which is why, yeah. I don't think they are. Yeah, and and that all that's always my question when I I talk to anybody about the inequities in the school system mm-hmm. is that it you know 
the classic question, like, can we change it from the inside or do we just need to burn it down and start again? <laughs> well, that's prim. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much the premise of my book from an action to an action. So we think about an action, right? To be inactive is to, in this context, be indifferent. Uh, to have despair. To commiserate. To have a sense of hopelessness about what is or isn't possible within our system. Because you've been in it for so long, you just feel like no matter what you say, your voice doesn't have power. So how do we go from that state into a state of inaction where we separate the in, the prefix in, from the word action and start being proactive in how we advocate for our schools and our students and, and our families in the different communities we serve? So I think to answer your question, obviously we've tried to do things internally and that hasn't really worked out for us. So we do need to take a more radical approach. So in order for us to really fix the issues, we'd have to revamp the system. We have to revamp it. Just a note, at this point in the conversation, we started discussing how we think COVID-19 will impact our educational system, perhaps being a catalyst for massive change, specifically around parental awareness of what students are learning. In order to fit all of Kwame's other amazing insights into this episode, I've had to edit it out, but have decided to release it as a small bonus episode that you should see in your podcast feeds soon. To, so you, you have your, your book from inaction to inaction, as well as the teacher identity book. What other writing, uh, if people are inspired, which I'm pretty sure they will be by listening to you, um, what else can they find that, that you have written? Um, if you go on Edutopia, I, I have a couple of articles. Um, I have one article on steps to take to teach a culturally responsive lesson in math. So that just speaks to how math teachers can merge uh, their academic content with, with um, topics of social justice. So I talk about that in that article. And then mo my most recent Edutopia article is focused on um, activities that you can give your math students in order to improve their numeracy skills. I'll put the links for sure in the show notes. To circle back just to the idea of teacher identity, for teachers that are now, perhaps they've been doing things a certain way or seeing themselves a certain way, and now that's been disrupted, do you have any strategies for teachers who are feeling like their identity is being threatened by this new reality. So I'm doing, so I'm just doing just different things to stay busy and, and, and just stay effective because I think in the end, we are, we are skilled professionals. We're not babysitters. So we have to leverage our skill sets in order to impact change. So I think depending on who you are and what your skill sets are, you're going to figure out what's going to work for you. So I would just say, trust your instincts. 
and your skill sets and leverage them in a way that's going to bring about the change that you want to see in your school and and community. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective and your insight and doing all the stuff that you're doing. I think that's going to be incredibly helpful for teachers to listen to and hopefully do some of their own reflection. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Aviva. This has been great. So there you have it. By being aware of your own identity and the intersecting identities of your students and colleagues can help you better understand yourself, your relationships, and your teaching practice, as well as motivate you to make needed changes in the school system. If you want to find out more about what innovative educators are doing around the world, check out LessonImpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing, or forwarding it to a colleague. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.